I want to follow on from what we were looking at at last Lord's Day. You will remember that we said that by way of introduction, the book of Jonah is real history. It is a book like many other portions of Scripture that has been assailed and assaulted by critics. There are people who simply do not believe that there was ever such an event as the fall in the Garden of Eden. They don't believe that there were such people as Adam and Eve. They do not, they do not believe that there was such an event as the worldwide flood. There are people who don't believe that there was a man called Noah or an ark that he built. There are folks who do not accept that there was a man called Jonah or that he was swallowed by a whale. And there's all sorts of other portions of Scripture that have come under assault and attack by the enemy. But of course, if you're going to say that Jonah is not real history, you're going to have a big problem if you imagine that other parts of the Bible are true. You can't cherry-pick the Scriptures in that way and say, well, the book of Jonah is probably not true, but then the Gospels probably are true. Because if you then read the Gospels, you'll see that there's supporting testimony for the ministry of Jonah there. Because the Lord Jesus Christ talked about Jonah. As I pointed out last time, even in the Old Testament, in 2 Kings 14 verse 25, Jonah is mentioned as an historical character. There was a real man called Jonah. And he did have a ministry there for the Lord. Eventually, in Nineveh, though initially, he did not want to go there. We pointed out last time that Jonah is a typical character. That there is typical teaching in this little book. Jonah, for example, is a type of the sinner. In that we find him alienated from God and his word. We find him embarked on a downward course. We see him even in an unconcerned state as he took that downward course. We note also that he had to pay for his disobedience. That he was cast off by his companions when it suited them. And only God's mercy could save him. All of these things remind us of the sinner. But then we talked about Jonah as a type of the Savior. We can look at him both in ways that contrast with Christ and are comparable to Christ. We noted, for example, that there's a contrast in Jonah's disobedience unto the place of death. And we will be dealing with that a little more tonight. The Lord was obedient unto death. We notice also that Jonah went down, but there's a comparison there with Christ in that the Lord Jesus had to come down and go down from the heights of glory into a place of humiliation in order to be our Savior. We find that Jonah slept in the midst of a storm in a boat. The Lord Jesus did the same thing in his ministry. But of course, as a contrast, in that Jonah was rebuked by unbelieving men in that vessel, whereas the Lord Jesus was the one who rebuked unbelieving men in his case. Then we found that Jonah willingly sacrificed himself to save others by being thrown overboard into the sea. Just like the Savior willingly offered himself a sacrifice for others. Again, Jonah felt that the wrath of God, like a flood, had passed over him. That reminds us of the Lord Jesus who prophetically said, All thy waves and thy billows are gone over me. 
Jonah's name then in Hebrew means the dove, which is the messenger of peace. And Christ is the messenger of peace. I mentioned as well that Jonah came preaching repentance. That's exactly what Jesus did. The first message that Christ ever preached was found in Matthew 4 verse 17. He came and he preached saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jonah also, like Christ, was an intercessor. Jonah, like Christ, hailed from an area of Galilee. And Jonah, like Christ, spent three days and three nights in his case, in the belly of the whale, but in Christ's case, in the depths of the earth. But it's a wonderful type and a wonderful picture of the Savior as Christ himself indicated. Now, we want to look at this prophecy, not just typically, but historically. As I said, this is real history. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. This is not a fairy tale This is not something that belongs with the story of the little gingerbread boy. This is real truth. There was a man called Jonah. And in the book of Jonah, we have his story. Crystallized into four fairly short chapters. The book of Jonah itself is a book of two sections. And you see how both of those sections begin. Chapter 1 verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time. There's the two divisions of the book. Chapters 1 and 2, beginning with the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Chapters 3 and 4, beginning with and the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time. If you wanted a simple outline of the book, I would say it would be as follows. Chapter 1 is the plan of Jonah. Jonah had a plan, just like many people today have a plan. We're going to do this, we're going to do that, and we're going to do the other thing. But as one famous Scotsman who was a poet said, the plans of mice and men are gang aglay. In other words, There are those plans that people make that just cannot be carried out and will not be carried out. Because God has a plan. And it often does not coincide with our plan. That was the case with Jonah. But Jonah had a plan. So chapter 1 is the plan of Jonah. Chapter 2 then, I think, is the prayer of Jonah. And it does begin that chapter with, Then Jonah prayed. And it's interesting to note when it was that he prayed. So there's the plan of Jonah. There's the prayer of Jonah. Chapter 3 contains the preaching of Jonah. The Lord told him in chapter 3 verse 2, Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. And that's exactly what he did this time. So Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And they began to preach. So you have the preaching of Jonah. But in chapter 4 you have what I would call the perverseness of Jonah. Uh, Jonah is still not a happy camper, we might say, when we come to chapter 4. The verse 1 reminds us of this. It it teaches us about Jonah's disposition. But 
it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. The perverseness of Jonah comes to the fore in this fourth chapter. Now let's go back to chapter 1. The prophet Jonah appears in the first chapter of his book as the disobedient servant. The disobedient prophet, the disobedient man of God. A man who doesn't want God's will for his life. Let's read. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up. He didn't rise up to go to Nineveh, but he rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, and went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. There we have the rebellion of the servant. The rebellion of the servant. What is a servant? A servant is one who has a master. And he should always be ready to obey his master. Jonah was a servant of the Lord. He actually confessed to these men in the boat. In verse 9 of chapter 1 that he was a Hebrew. He's identifying the people of God that he belongs to. And then he says, And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven. I fear the Lord. Jonah was God's prophet. He was God's prophet to whom the word of the Lord came. Now this is something of a prophetic formula in the Old Testament. You'll find this in the ministry of Ezekiel. You'll find it in the ministries of various other prophets. This phraseology, chapter 1, verse 1, Now the word of the Lord came. The word of the Lord came. You see that that is what we call the prophetic formula. It's something that happened in the lives of many of God's servants, God's prophets. And Jonah was such. He was a prophet of God. He was called to be a servant of the Lord. And yet he rebelled while involved in that service. Rebellion is a terrible sin. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, the prophet Samuel was speaking with Saul. And Saul was giving an excuse to Samuel as to why he did not obey the word of the Lord, which was to utterly destroy the Amalekites and all that they possessed, including their sheep and oxen and herds. And he tried to say, that he kept back the best of the herds, that he did what he did so that he could sacrifice unto the Lord in Gilgal. It seemed like a really spiritual reason that Saul gave for not doing what he was told. And notice what Samuel said to him. First Samuel 15, verse 22 and 23. And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey 
is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Now if you look at the law of God as it pertained to the Israelites, the sin of witchcraft was a very terrible sin. It was punishable by death. And yet Samuel tells Saul that rebellion is just like the sin of witchcraft. And stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. In Jonah's case, I have to say that the rebellion of God's servant was a conscious rebellion. It's not that he didn't know what he was doing. He knew exactly what he was doing. Because the word of the Lord had come to him very, very clearly. There's no ambiguity at all here on the Lord's part. He tells Jonah, verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it. The word of the Lord is absolutely crystal clear to Jonah as to what he should do. And I think we might pause here to say that there are certain lessons that we learn about the call of God in this portion. Think about the call of God to a servant of his, to what we might often call full-time service. For example, if God is calling someone to the mission field or calling someone to be a preacher of the gospel, you'll see that the call of God is personal. The word of the Lord came unto Jonah. It was for him. It was a word from the Lord just for him. It was personal. It was plain. He said, arise, go to Nineveh. He was left in no doubt as to the task that lay before him. Arise and go and cry against it. He's plainly sent to preach God's word. God's call could not be misunderstood by Jonah. It was plain. It was easy for him to understand what the Lord was saying. His rebellion was a conscious rebellion because God's call to him was personal. It was plain. And you'll notice that it was particular. It was precise. Go to Nineveh. I want you to go, Jonah, to a particular place. There is a place where I want you to serve me. And friends, there's always a place where God wants us to serve him. God always has a place for us to minister when he calls us. And yet the man of God here rebelled against the word of the Lord. It was willful disobedience. Conscious rebellion. It's not that Jonah was going astray here through ignorance. It's not that he didn't know what he was doing. This was willful rebellion against God. And you know, that's a serious thing. That's a serious thing in the life of a believer. To go out of your way deliberately to disobey the word of God. You might say that that's the mark of an unsafe person to go his own way. 
All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way. The ungodly person wants his own way, doesn't want God's way, he wants to go his own way. But it's also true of the backslider. The person who gets away from the Lord, who is a believer, but he wants to go his own way. The proverb says, the backslider in heart is filled with his own ways. This is Jonah. This is conscious rebellion. But it's also convenient rebellion. I think we need to really understand what's going on here. Because in the third verse of chapter 1, we see that Jonah at first found that circumstances were very favorable to his disobedience. Things were working out well for Jonah. Look at his situation. He hears the call of God, I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to cry against it. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he had a place in mind that he wanted to go to. And it says he went down to Joppa, which was a seaport, where boats came in, ships that went to all manner of different places. And notice, he found a ship going to Tarshish. He wanted to go to Tarshish, and he found a ship that was going to Tarshish. It's all working out. Here's something now that's favorable to his disobedience. Of course, we should understand as well that by desiring to go to Tarshish, he's actually wanting to go to the furthest point possible in the opposite direction from Nineveh. If you look at it on a map, you can get these Old Testament maps, you'll see that it is in the opposite direction from Nineveh. Tarshish was the most westerly point. Nineveh was to the east. And so conveniently, Jonah finds a ship that's going exactly in the direction that he wants to go. Let's take this a little further. He wants to go to Tarshish. He goes to the port to find a ship that's going to Tarshish. It's all working out. There was room on board. See, he could have gone there and found a ship that was going to Tarshish, but sorry, sir, we're all full. There's no more room on board. But there was room on board for him. In fact, he could even go down into the sides of the ship. Not only that, he had the fare. He had the money. He wanted to go to Tarshish. There's a boat that's going to Tarshish. There's room on board. So he paid the fare thereof. He had the money to do what he wanted to do. It's all working out, isn't it? It's all going very swimmingly. And here's the interesting thing. You'll not find this in the English, but if you go into the Hebrew Bible, it says he found a ship going to Tarshish. The phrase in the original is something like this. He found a ship just about to go to Tarshish. Isn't that amazing? I don't know if you've ever gone on a boat where they left the moorings those big ropes that they tie around those things on the side of the port, they lift those ropes and they bring them in by hydraulic means these days. And other things with chains, they unlatch those so that the boat can leave the berth and go out in, from the harbour out into the ocean. I've done that many times. 
sailing between Scotland and Ireland on ferry boats. And every time I've done that, I've thought about what happened with Jonah. It got down there to the port just as the ship was about to leave the port. It's just about to leave. And you can just see him sprinting and jumping on board just in time to make it before it pulls away from the shore. It must be the right thing to do. That's how he could have argued. I want to go to Tarshish. There's a boat going to Tarshish. There's room on board. I've got the fare. And I've made it just in time. I can see people today with that kind of lining up of circumstances saying, that's the will of God. Must be. Must be the will of God. Because here's where I want to go. This is what I want to do. I've got the money to do it. I've got the wherewithal to do it. It's all working out. The timing is perfect. It must be the right thing to do. Here is the plan being carried out. It's all being facilitated. Now don't get me wrong. When God is leading and directing you, He will and He can order the circumstances when we're seeking His will. But it's always dangerous for a Christian to reason in this way that circumstances alone will determine the will of God for us. Because that's not true. Why is it not true? Because of verse 1. The word of the Lord came unto Jonah, saying... See, that trumped everything. It doesn't matter about Jonah's plan. It doesn't matter about Jonah's desire to do something else and all the circumstances that are lining up to help him to do that. The word of God said, Jonah... I want you to rise and go to Nineveh and cry against it. Period. That's the end of the story. You know the devil will make it convenient for you to disobey God. The devil will make sure that he provides the circumstances that will allow you to disobey the Lord if that should be what's in your mind and heart. But remember this, the convenient path is not Always the right one. And quite, in fact, the, the, the convenient path is quite often the wrong one. You know, the easier way. Isn't it easier often to do wrong than to do right? It's easier. The path of least resistance. Who wants to swim against the this, this stream and against the tide? Go with the flow. That's the devil's way. But remember this, God doesn't and will not bless rebellion. He will not bless rebellion. So Jonah is in the wrong here. The rebellion of the servant is clear. But as well as the rebellion of the servant, you have providentially the roughness of a storm. The roughness of the storm... I notice in verse 3 it begins with the word but. And yet verse 4 also begins with a but. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea. And there was a mighty tempest in the sea so that the ship was like to be broken. 
Jonah's going his own way. Jonah's doing what he wants to do. But the Lord is going to work. And so when Jonah started to get away from the Lord, God sent a storm into his life. It's described here in verse 4 as a great wind and a mighty tempest. I made this remark last time that that storm must have been really bad when those hardened sailors, those mariners, were frightened. It tells us that the ship was like to be broken, verse 4. It was a really bad storm that was going to destroy that boat. And it says, verse 5, then the mariners were afraid. These old hardened sailors who had made that voyage probably hundreds or even thousands of times, they're afraid and they started crying out every man unto his God. It's always interesting to me how men become religious when they're in trouble. And sometimes never before that. There's the roughness of the storm. Seamen who were not easily scared were frightened out of their wits. Because you see, this was no ordinary storm. This wasn't just like the regular tempests and the storms that arose on that body of water. Why was that? Because it says the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea. This is something God did. This was not an accident. This was not a happenstance. This wasn't what the world calls bad luck. You run into a storm. No, it says, but the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea. And there was a mighty tempest. This was something that the Lord sent. And you know, God often sends storms into the lives of men and women. Sometimes even Christians. Where life can be really rough and really hard. I don't know where the idea ever came from that being a Christian was plain sailing and everything would be hunky-dory. It's certainly not from Scripture. I don't find this in the Bible. Your best life now. You know, that rubbish. There are people who never knew what trouble was till they got saved. They never knew what hardship was until they came to Christ. Because the Lord often allows storms to come into our lives. And the world can't understand that. I want you to see here in this case the storm arose in the life of a backslider. A backslider. A man who is a servant of the Lord, he's a prophet of the Lord. But he's getting away from the Lord, he's getting out of the will of God. And I want you to know that when people get away from God, who are truly saved, the Lord will sooner or later take a dealing with them. The Lord will take a dealing with them. What was wrong with Jonah? He got out of fellowship with God. That's what happened to him. He got out of fellowship with God. He rose up to flee unto Tarsus from the presence of the Lord. Don't you think that a Christian, a believer, wants the presence of the Lord? We want the presence of the Lord in our lives. We want to know that He's near. We want to be able to pray to Him and commune with Him 
and know that we have the smile of heaven upon us. The believer doesn't normally want to get away from the presence of the Lord. But here's a man who wants to get out from God's fellowship. Actually, the words here, from the presence of the Lord, literally means from being in the presence of the Lord. So what does that tell us? That tells us that here's a man who is in fellowship with God. Jonah is in a place of fellowship and communion with the Lord. But he rose up to flee from the presence of the Lord, from being in the presence of the Lord. Who breaks the fellowship? It's not the Lord that breaks the fellowship. If you're out of fellowship with God tonight, it's not because the Lord has broken off the fellowship. It's because you've broken it off, or I've broken it off. It's my fault. It's your fault if you're not going on with God. And a breach in fellowship is really a very good definition of backsliding. You know how it goes. You stop reading the Word. You stop reading it for one day, and then you don't read it for a second day. And then before you know it, a week has passed. Two weeks. A month. And then it gets to where you can't remember the last time you really spent time in the Word or in prayer. Backsliding. And that kind of disobedience the Lord will deal with. It could take various forms. But there is no doubt that a person who is a true child of God will experience chastisement. I know beyond any shadow of doubt that my parents loved us. Me and my siblings. They manifested that to us in so many different ways. But I also remember, some more clearly than other times, when we had to be chastised. Maybe it wasn't physical chastisement. could have been that we were grounded. You were told, you're not going there. No, that's it. That's you done for. You're not allowed that for a week or whatever it may be. Or it could be my mother going back into the backyard and stripping a piece of hedge and taking the leaves off of it and laying the wood to my bare legs. I remember that. didn't do me a bit of harm. Although at the time I thought I was going to die. Chastisement. A true parent, a proper parent, will exercise proper chastisement at the right times. And God is just like that. He's our Heavenly Father. And we read in Hebrews chapter 12 the following words. From verse number 5. Hebrews 12 from verse 5. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. See that? Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. It's not because he hates us. Because he loves us. And scourgeth. Every son whom he receiveth, if ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But, notice this, if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards 
and not sons. Illegitimates. You're not children at all. If you don't experience the chastening hand of God. But Jonah was a child of God. And he was chastened. And therefore he had to experience the roughness of the storm. But of course, even in the midst of that, you have what I would call the repose of the sinful. Or the repose of the slothful, might be a better way to put it. The repose of the slothful. It was because of his sin. Jonah chapter 1, the second part of verse 5, says this. But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship, and he lay and was fast asleep. Is that not a remarkable thing? There's the mother of all storms taking place, and where's Jonah? He's sleeping inside the ship. What does that tell us? It tells us that backsliders even can be content for a while in their sin. For a while, they can be quite happy and quite contented away from the presence of the Lord. They may lie down in iniquity for a time and enjoy a measure of fleshly peace and repose. For it says he lay and was fast asleep. He was snoring. I read in the New Testament in Luke chapter 2 a story of Mary and Joseph. Mary and Joseph who had gone up with the 12 year old Jesus for the time of the Passover and when they were leaving the Passover they travelled on but Jesus remained behind to talk with the doctors of the law hearing and asking them questions. And what I read in Luke chapter 2 is really remarkable that Mary and Joseph were able to go on without Jesus for three days journey. Now tell me this. As parents of a child of 12, would you have been able to travel somewhere for three days without checking to see where they were? I don't know why it was. Maybe they thought, well, he's with our acquaintances and friends. And he's in the train with the rest. It'll be all right. But it was only after three days journey that they turned back seeking him. That literally happened. But there's a spiritual lesson in that, I believe, that, that disobedient Christians can seem to be getting on okay for a while in sin. They can seem to be getting on all right without the fellowship of the Lord in their lives for a period of time. But the thing is, if a person is truly saved, if they're truly regenerate, the bubble of contentment will burst and it had come to that point where the prodigal son came to where he began to be in want. So let's not conclude that somebody was never saved just because for a time it looks like they're content in their ungodliness. Because time will tell. Time will tell if they really know the Lord or not. The repose of the sinful. There's a lesson in that. But also, there's the rebuke of the slothful. The rebuke of the slothful. The man who's sleeping hears about it from the shipmaster. Verse 6, 
So the shipmaster came to him. Here's Jonah lying in the sides of the ship. He's lying there fast asleep. And so the shipmaster came to him. And you can imagine him shaking him roughly. And he says to him, What meanest thou, old sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God. If so be that God will think upon us that we perish not. Look at all these other men, these mariners. They're all crying out, each man to his God. And you're lying there, slothful. What is this? This rebuke of the slothful. This is a heathen shipmaster who is rebuking a servant of God for not caring for those who were in danger. Jonah is sleeping while ungodly men on that ship are praying to false gods. Do you know something? The zeal of the false cults puts a lot of Christians to shame. There are people who are peddling a false gospel and they give days, days out of their week to go around peddling their garbage, their false doctrine. I know they're deceived. I know they're preaching a false message. But think about the zeal that they've got in doing it. I used to marvel at that, that you've got two clean-cut young men coming to my door in Scotland or in Northern Ireland with their little name plates on. You know, Elderberry. Various people like that. And one's maybe 18 and the other's 19. And you find out they're from Utah. And they've given two years of their lives, two years, to leave the state that they're brought up in to go to a country overseas with a whole different culture and a way of going so that every single day of the week they could knock on doors and try to proselytize people for their false religion. And there are some Christians who wouldn't go the length of this street to reach somebody for Christ. What meanest thou, O sleeper? You know, the truth is that many, and I speak to myself here, this is not the bully pulpit in operation here, the truth is that, that believers can be asleep while the world around is perishing. And it's a really sad thing when a heathen man has to tell a believer to pray. That's what happened here. The shipmaster is a heathen. He's not a follower of Jehovah. But he has to tell Jonah, Arise and call upon thy God. Start praying, Jonah. If so be that God will think upon us that we perish not. Think about it tonight. Are we slothful and are we sleepy? And showing no concern for the souls of the lost. Bring it a little bit closer in. Could our loved ones and friends and neighbors and co-workers point an accusing finger at us and say, What meanest thou, O sleeper? You're not concerned about me. You haven't got a thought in your head about me. 
and what my eternal destiny is. Listen to Romans chapter 13 and verse number 11. And that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The time will come when we will no longer be able to witness to others for Christ. Because our day will have come to an end. And what will we have to show for a life on this earth? Will there be people who will rise up at the judgment? Who we had a lot to do with in this life. And they'll say, not once, not once did that person ever tell me about Christ. Not once did that person ever invite me to a gospel service. Not once did that person ever give me a gospel tract. Not once did that person show the slightest interest in my soul. And here I am on the day of judgment and I'm going to hell. And they're going to heaven. The parable of the wise and the foolish virgins contains this statement. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. Not just the five foolish, but the five wise virgins who represent believers. They were sleeping and slumbering just like the rest. Is that us? Because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Is that going to be said of us? What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise and call upon thy God. Surely the least we can do as believers is to pray for lost souls. We can pray for them. And it shouldn't take some heathen person to tell us that we need to do it. The Lord himself would tell us that. We'll come back to the book of Jonah and see what the Lord has to say to us again from this passage. But may he use what we've looked at tonight to challenge and to bless our hearts.